Welcome. And so here's Psalm 51 this morning. I'm going to read the entire psalm so we can get the context. We'll pray and then we'll get into the preaching of God's Word. This psalm, written by David. And if you're reading there, if you have a copy of the ESV, it says, When Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. And that is language that, of course, that part is not particularly required. But that part right there, when he says he'd gone into, that's when David, King David, had sinned with Bathsheba. When he says he had gone in, yes, he had committed adultery with Bathsheba. And so this psalm is penned by David. Listen to the words of King David as he writes this psalm, as he wrote this psalm. Have mercy on me, O God. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me, did conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach your transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise, for you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Reading of God's word, let us pray. Father, as we open your word now, we ask you, to be glorified, to be exalted, to exalt the name that is above every name, and that's the name of Jesus, the only name that matters. He's the one that's even sustaining every breath here of every person here in this room and everywhere. So, Father, we ask this morning that you would bless your people, that they would be refreshed as they hear your word, to be encouraged because we are aware that we are sinners in need of your forgiveness, in need of your grace. Thank you that Jesus paid it as we just sang moments ago, that he paid it. It is not I, but Christ in me. You know, Father, that we have nothing to offer but our sin. And Jesus gladly took it upon himself to the cross. 
Help us now through the power of your Holy Spirit to understand your word and to apply your word. To remember the gospel once again. Help me to preach clearly with unction, Lord. Not on my own accord, but according to your word, which is true. Sanctify your people now by your word, for your word is truth. And anyone here that doesn't know you, Father, any heart that you've awakened, bring them to the throne of grace. And any heart that hasn't been awakened, awakened it here this morning, Lord, for the glory of Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. If you are familiar with sports, if you ever suffered an injury, you know that sports can be an injury, a sports injury. I'm talking about not a sprained ankle. I'm talking about maybe an Achilles, an ACL tear. My daughter recently went through one. She's still going through rehab. A broken leg, maybe a neck injury. If you ever seen any of these injuries, athletes, you know what really keeps them from coming back oftentimes? It's not so much the injury and the physical therapy itself. It's actually the mental portion that comes with it. The psychological, oftentimes teams, have, there's a thing called sports psychology. Now, it never existed back in the day, but now it's a thing. Sports psychology for years, for some decades now. Teams hire these psychologists to work with these athletes that at times, especially when they go through injuries, can be very hard. Because you're trying to think, Okay, this athlete whose identity, the, the, the franchise player, the one that this team paid all this money for, now gets injured. And the team is depending on him. What do you do? Right? And his identity is out the window. Will I ever come back? There's this depression that sets in. And you're going through rehab and now you're wondering, will I ever be able to play the way I used to play? Imagine you tear, you tear your ACL and all of a sudden having to jump and try to dunk a basketball, wondering if the next time you land is going to be another tear. And so now you're very cautious. So the mental aspect is very key. Beloved, very similarly, when we actually, in Christianity, it's no different. Spiritually speaking, when we sin, we go through something very similar. And this is exactly what David is going through. David, from the beginning of this psalm, he's been confronted with his sin. What we went through in the last sermon, the first five verses. David's heart cries out before God, have mercy on me. David could no no longer pretend. He was the man that God knew and had revealed to Nathan, you are the man that took another man's wife. You're an adulterer. And God is not going to punish you. He's actually going to go ahead and your son is going to die as a consequence. Think of that for a moment. That's what David was confronted with here in those first five verses. And that is what he's writing. And David, mind you, Samuel, in 1 Samuel, you see, this was the guy that was supposed to be the man after God's own heart. The one that God said, I will raise after Saul. I will, I'm going to get someone with, with, has, uh, whose heart is after my own. That's supposed to be David. And this is what David does. So imagine for a second. So his plea is, have mercy on me. And David, by the way, he couldn't use Adam's excuse in the garden. Remember that excuse in Genesis 3? 
It was the woman you gave me. He couldn't use that excuse. It's the woman you had taken, David. Not the woman you had given. God didn't give you Bathsheba. You took Bathsheba. So imagine that for a second. He had been found out. And so from this plea, this have mercy on me, David begins to solely rest on God's character. What is his only hope at that moment is that you, that you are abundant in mercy, in your steadfast love. Lamentations 3.22, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. David had to hold on to that. What else is he going to hold on to? And David continues, and, and as he ponders upon that, now the faithfulness of God's character, and he acknowledges, and he's confessing his sin now in the following three verses, three, four, and five. He says, For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. David is not downplaying his sin. He's not saying it was you know, a little mistake. Sin is never a little mistake. Sin is and will always be an assault on God's holiness. That is why Jesus went to the cross. Jesus didn't go to the cross for oopsies. Jesus didn't go to the cross for my bads. He went to the cross because we had sinned against the holy God. So this morning as we pick up in verses 6 and onward, Understanding our sin, understanding where we are before a holy God is important. Confessing our sin is important. But beloved, that is only the beginning. If we only end in confession, then what awaits us? Despair? Is that what awaited David? No. David doesn't go into a downward spiral into a pity party. Let us see how David actually ends the rest of the psalm. And so David here, as we get into it, I only have three points here for us this morning. David's request to be restored in verses 6 through 9, for those of you that are taking note. David's request to be restored. Secondly, David's hope uh, is renewed. His hope is renewed. And thirdly, David's heart of worship. That is David's part. So let's look at this first part. David's request to be restored in verses 6 through 9. When you and I have royally messed it up and you know what that's like you know when you have botched it. you know when you have really really messed up here when i mean to the point where you know you have violated someone's trust it's not easy because when we do that what what's the thing that we want to do we want to immediately regain kids you know this your parents may have told you i trust you until i can trust you no more until you give me a reason to not trust you. And then, waiting for your parents to go ahead and say, and regain that trust is hard. Maybe even spouses. Parents. You know what that's like. And so now, David wants to, he wants to regain what he had lost. But how is he going to do that? And so David understands the, not just confession, not just acknowledging his sin before God. He actually needs to be restored and he needs God to teach him and that's what we see here immediately and here in this verse verse 6 you see behold you desire truth I'm going to read it from the NASB I know you have the um, we read the uh, ESV but I like the way the NASB says it he says behold 
You desire truth in the innermost being. And in secret, you will make wisdom known to me. What David is doing here, this is synthetic parallel, what, what's happening here. It's not an antithetical one where sometimes you've seen in Scripture where it says, you know, the righteous are this way, but the wicked are this, this other way. He's not doing that. He's actually putting these two parts together and he's expanding on his first part, which is, behold, you desire truth in the innermost being. And then on top of that, he, go ahead, he adds the second part, and in secret, you make wisdom known to me. This idea of truth and wisdom. In other words, I want you to teach me, you and I, one-on-one. I need you to grab and, and, and I'm going to wrestle, but you're going to teach me. I need you to teach me. Psalm 119.11 says, I have hidden your word in my heart that I may not sin against you. Now, some of you are familiar with that, and we want that. What believer doesn't want God's word to be treasured in his heart so that you may not sin against, you, uh, against God? Think about that for a second. I want that. But to simply hiding God's word in your heart, is that just like some miraculous remedy? Because I, as much as I memorize scripture, as much as I hide his word in my heart, guess what? I still sin. So what gives? God, didn't you say I should hide your word in my heart that I might not sin against you? It doesn't guarantee sinlessness. But when you hide his word in your heart, you're not just doing it to check off a box. You're hiding his word in your heart so the Holy Spirit can work. The counselor that God, that Jesus said, I must leave, but I'm going to send you my counselor to work in you, to teach you. That's what he has to work with. It's his word that you've hidden in his heart so that when you are being tempted to go ahead and do something that is, that is sinful before God, you can recall God's word. And all of a sudden you remember. I mean, think of Joseph. How can I do this against God? You have, in order to get to that point, we have to understand that we have to hide his word in our heart. We have to be willing to be taught by God so that, yeah, we want to be wise. See, just think about it for a second. It, 1 Peter 1, 15, 16. Be holy as he is holy. Right? Be holy as he is holy. Who doesn't want to be holy? Like God is holy. We all do. We all strive for that. But where does that begin? It begins with your willingness, like David, to be taught by him, to have his word in you constantly. Not because your parents forced you to. Because you know you need it. Not because your parents told you, open up the Bible and read it. Because you understand that without it, I can't live. It's His Word that needs to be in our heart. That's the intentionality of holiness. Holiness begins with hiding God's Word in your heart, as I mentioned, if you want to be like Christ. Which is ultimately the Holy Spirit's what, what, what the Holy Spirit's here to do, right? To make you more like who? Like the pastor? I hope not. To make you more like your parents? No. Or your favorite preacher? No. To make you more like Christ. That is the goal. And that is where David wants to be. And now, the beauty of this verse, to me, as I understand this, is that David understands there's much to learn and much for him to to be taught by God himself. God has David's full attention. 
He's been called out. Does God have your attention? Does God have your attention? Do you need to go through some trial in your life to finally understand, God, you're tra- okay, I'm listening. Or can today be the day where you actually say, God, you have my full attention. I don't need tragedy or something that has strike me for me to get to that point. Are you willing to pay whatever it is to be taught by your heavenly Father? It's a good question. And that is where David's at. David says, teach me. I want this to be in my, in my innermost being. Teach me this wisdom. But he doesn't end there. He says, David sees himself as a spiritual leper. He sees himself as a spiritual leper. How do I know that? Because look at the words that he uses in verse 7. He says, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. What David is using, the imagery that he's using, he's using that of a leper. When a leper, a leper had to be ostracized, had to be set apart, right? He couldn't be mingling with others. And in order for the leper to be declared clean, he had to first go to the priest. And the priest had to do something in particular. He had to grab these hyssop branches, put them in a bunch, okay? Put them in a bunch, put a live bird, tie it with a scarlet yarn string, dip in the sacrificial blood, and then sprinkle them seven times to be declared clean. David is using that imagery that was known to the Jews. For us, none of us have ever been sprinkled with sacrificial blood. But what he is saying is that this is the cleansing that I need. No different than this leper that needs to go to the priest to be declared clean. This is what I need. Purge me. Purge me. Make me clean. I'm no different. So when you read Isaiah 1, and that part, it says, Come, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. That right there is exactly where David is at. You can purge me, and you can declare me clean, and I will be whiter than snow. Beloved, do you see this picture of hope? Do you see this picture that with God, the crimson stain of sin will never be beyond His cleansing power? Never. But that cleansing power came at a great cost. That cleansing power was not free. That cleansing power had to be paid for because sin had to be paid for. And it wasn't paid with bags of money. It wasn't paid with silver or gold. It was paid with none other than the atoning blood of Jesus. That is the hope that we have. So when you sing, and we've sung so many times, Jesus paid it all. That verse right there, that sin had left the crimson stain, but Jesus, Jesus made it white as snow. Have you ever tried to remove a blood stain? One that's been dried there for a while? It's not coming off. It's not. And Jesus has grabbed that crimson stain of sin that we have and he's made it white as snow for those that come to him. And David ends these 
in the following two verses, in verses 8 and 9, he circles back in the Hebrew poetry. He circles back and he calls back upon the God's character. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. He is solely banking on God's steadfast love and his abundant mercy. Only you can blot out my iniquities. I can't even block them out from my own mind. I close my eyes and all I think of is my sin. All I think about is my guilt. But you, you can block them out. You can delete them. And so that's David's request to be restored. Now we go into David's hope is renewed. David had been focused up until his entire time on his sin against God, his depravity, his confession, and his eyes now begin to shift slowly from himself to the hope that he has in God. Do you see that? Read with me the verses. This, this, the, this pain for the transgressions now is understanding that I want this joy to be restored, this joy of your salvation. He says in verses 10 through 14a, create in, me, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right, meaning a steadfast spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then, I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from the blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation. You know what David desires now? He wants to walk rightly with God. He wants to make his path straight again. I had messed it up with Bathsheba. I confess and I acknowledge that. Help me to walk right now. Help me to keep that line. Help me not to deviate to the right or to the left but help me to walk straight to you. All of us should desire that. I, all of you know what that, I guess the, the, the similar thing that I guess that I can think of is the don't look down syndrome. You know what that syndrome is? I mean, if you ever considered a person that's afraid of heights, in our effort to try to comfort them, what do we tell them? Don't look down. Thinking that somehow that's, that's going to work. And all, the first human reaction is to what? To look down. And why'd you do that? I told you not to look down. So imagine a person that is heavy with sin and telling them, don't sin. All you're doing, yes, Jesus told a couple of days, hey, go, sin no more. But you know what the trick is? You want a trick? It's not tell yourself, I don't want to sin. I don't want to continue doing this. Help me not to do this. God, help me not to do that. You know what the trick is? To stay near to Jesus. That's where the trick is. Abide in me, John 15, as I abide in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. We love to go to that last part and say, hey, apart from Jesus, you, can, you can't do anything. We love quoting that, but we forget that everything that precedes that says, abide in me as I will abide in you. That was Jesus' entire heart in his ministry here on earth. I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Jesus lived that out for us to see that this is what a life looks like that abides in God. 
You keep on trying to do things on your own. You try to stop fight, continue fighting sin on your own and let me know how it works out for you. How is it going? You don't have to tell me because I already know because I've been there and I am still there. You try and you try and you try, but then you remember, wait, why am I trying? I need to stick to Jesus. Let me stay near to him. And the more I put my mind on him, there's nothing else to fill my mind with. I don't have time to think of how I'm going to sin and how I'm going to do all this foolishness. All these temptations that keep on perhaps coming through my mind, I don't, they don't have room, they don't have space because I'm filled with those things from above. God's magic wand, telling the youth this past Friday. I know, and I know it's not just a youth problem. It's an all of us Christians problem. As believers, we ask God, please help me. Help me to not do this. Help me to not do that. And we want God. We don't say it, but we want God to go ahead and wave his magic wand and say, Paola, there, no longer. You're no longer having to struggle with that sin. Banished. How amazing that would be. But that's not how it works, does it? And the reason I know that, because that leads to frustration. God, but why? Why? You, tell, you say, you, you don't have because you don't ask. Well, I'm asking. And you're not handing it out to me. And that leads us more and more into frustration. But you know where the challenge is? It's not that God can't do that. Of course he can go ahead and wave and done. If Jesus can go ahead and calm the waters and the sea and the winds, believe me, sin is not an obstacle for him. But oftentimes our heart is focused on the circumstances. I don't say it this way, but I want God to change my external circumstances, change that person, that person, that thing, or that, that thing, but leave me untouched. Don't change me. I'm okay. It's them that you need to change. And then we wonder why. Consider in Scripture. How many times can you find in Scripture Paul praying, change my circumstances? What Paul prays for strengthen me. Encourage me. Grab hold of me. Let me grab hold of you. Paul wasn't about change this and change that. If God opened the gates of prison for him to get, hey, praise the Lord for that. But he wasn't thinking that. He was focused on staying near, again, to the point, abiding in his Savior. And what we think is, you know, God, I can handle it. I got this. Until you don't have it anymore, and then you go running back to him, asking him, please help me. That's what we need to understand, that the goal isn't simply to be forgiven, but our goal now, once God forgives us, is to walk rightly, to walk the path of righteousness. And he will do that. Forgiveness and goodness and hope we have, and it must not be hoarded in verse 13. The only thing I have to say about this is something very simple. The oxygen mask of grace and mercy, you have to put it on before helping others put it on. You know what I mean by that? That thing on the airplane that everybody ignores? When the flight attendants go on, that video that comes onto the screen and everybody just starts looking the other way and puts on their headphones, eh, I already know it. I know when they say, take out your safety card, no one grabs their safety card. Unless the person is really paranoid of flying, then they want to know every, wherever your exit is. But for the most part, people don't pay attention to that. 
But you know that they always tell you, put on your oxygen mask first before helping others. Oftentimes what we want to do is we want others to experience this grace, this goodness, but I myself am not doing that. Edwin mentioned it a couple weeks ago, what Jerry Reed had said, right? You want to give the syrup to others, you have to take it yourself first. And that's exactly the point. You have to be willing to, that oxygen mask of grace and mercy, you have to put it on first before trying to convince others that they need it. And finally, David's heart of worship, verses 14b through, verse, through verses 19. A psalm that started with David's deepest cry now is starting to turn into worship. Now you're starting to see this little light at the end of the tunnel. If you've ever been in those moments, you're like, Man, I don't see the light here. You don't need much light. You just need a little bit. The smallest speck of light is enough for you to go ahead and all of a sudden give you wings of hope. And that's where David's at. He says, And my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness, O Lord. Open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. Now, I don't picture David writing this psalm and all of a sudden jumping for joy. He didn't grab his stand-up desk and all of a sudden raise it up and now he's like, all right, now I'm on my feet, I'm ready to go. You don't see that. At least I don't think that's where he was. But there's something that's happening now. He understands that, yes, I sinned. Yes, I confess that. I want to walk rightly before you. But God, I know where my destination is and I, and I need you to be at the center of it. You're at the end of my road and you're at the beginning of my road. You are my focal point. You are my target. Not anything else, not anyone else. God is now at the center. Why do I say that? Because that's what sin has stolen from him. His sin with Bathsheba had basically taken that joy from him. He thought he was, leave, he, he thought he was good. The pleasure was there. The pleasure was there. There's no doubt about that. But his God wasn't there. He had lost complete focus. And that sin with Bathsheba cost David his heart of worship to God. And now he wants it back. He's longing to have it. He wants his heart to be filled um, not with sin, but rather with worshiping God. He wants God to be put back on his radar. He had emptied himself in confession in the first five verses. And now he wants God to basically pour in. Give me the joy of your salvation that makes my cup runneth over. That's what I need. And before he gets there, look at verses 16 and 17, and this is really key. The heart of worship has to, must, be preceded by a contrite heart. If there's nothing else you, you hear here this morning, listen to this. Saying, I'm sorry, I'm sorry I messed up, Saying all these things that you might say to God, in your mind you think you might be good. But is it? And that's a fair question. Read verses 16 and 17. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Wait a second. Freddie, isn't the whole Old Testament in the book of Leviticus about sacrifices? How do you deal with sin? There had to be sacrifices, right? So what is God saying here? Why would God say, wait, why is David writing all of this? Did he mess up? Did he get something wrong? You know what? You don't need a sacrifice now. I'm good. 
I'm Gucci, you know, that's it. You forgive me, I ask for forgiveness, I poured my heart out to you, I ask you to have mercy on me, and you did. No. What he is saying is something greater. What do you think he's saying? What he is saying is ultimately that the right heart is necessary. When you ask for forgiveness and you understand that your sin cost Jesus his life on the cross and that your sin had to be paid for and it was paid by none other than his blood, do you think, I'm sorry, I'll never do it again is going to help? Beloved, if all we needed to say was just I'm sorry, then the Pharisees would have been applauded. If all we ever needed to say was just externally show our, show our, our forgiveness but my heart is away from God, then Jesus would have commended the Pharisees. And he never does, does he? Why do you think that is? See, because the Pharisees... When it came to a religious activity, the Pharisees could bring their A-game. They can bring their A-game every single time. But their hearts were away from God. And that is exactly what David is saying. I don't want my heart to be away from you. I don't want to just give you lip service. I don't just simply want to tell you the right things. I am deeply remorseful. I repent of what I have done. I know, you guys know what John 4.24 says, that God is seeking what? True worshipers. To, to be a true worshiper, you have to be broken and contrite. To be broken over your sin. Derek Kidner, the Bible commentator, this is what he says, and I absolutely love it. Because he says, in all this, God is looking for the heart that knows how little it deserves, how much it owes. In all of this, does your heart know how little it deserves and how much it owes? That's a strong statement. Charles Spurgeon put it this way. A heart crushed is a fragrant heart. Who would think that for God to crush my spirit, crush my heart, is actually a pleasing to Him. Because as a famous songwriter put it, the way up is down. The way up is down. You want to go up, learn to go to your knees. And there at your knees you will see when you can pray and the and Lord teaches you to pray, crush me. Break me. Some of the scariest prayers I've ever prayed. But some of the most beautiful moments with my Savior. I don't like the junk that comes out. But it's so necessary. And finally, David prays for God's goodness toward Israel in verses 18 and 19. See, King David was probably using to build the house of the Lord. He doesn't get to. He tells Solomon his instructions on what to do to build the house for the Lord. David starts getting all the material for it. He just never gets to build it. David is thinking, because of what I did as king, Lord, 
don't take it upon your people. Don't take it upon, uh, out on Israel. Show your goodness to them instead. Don't hold what I did against them. In that moment, and not once in this entire psalm, do you see David saying, spare my son. Nathan has said, your son will die for what you've done. And not once does David say, spare my son. Because his heart was completely focused and he knew what he deserved. And that's why he can say, God, have abundant mercy on me. Sin is not a joking matter, beloved. It's not a joking matter. It's not to be taken lightly. And this psalm tells us that we need David's confession and brokenness. We need, just like David relied on God's character and his faithfulness, so do we. Your sin is not out of God's control. He can make you clean and make you white as snow. This is the hope that sinners have. But before you go there, we're going to take communion here in a little bit. Come to him with a broken and contrite heart. Because that's a reminder of what Jesus did. That's why we say, don't take it lightly. Communion is not something just to be flippant about. It means that we have to consider what we've done. Is it for the perfect? No. It's for sinners in need of grace. For sinners that remember that their Father is a merciful Father. That their Savior is a wonderful Savior. And that there's no sin ever that can ever be committed by any of His children that He will say, not that one. I can forgive everything except that one. Because in Christ, you are forgiven. He paid it all, and it was fully paid for. You know, um, and I'll end with this story. As I was thinking of this, I, for whatever reason, this story, this, this memory came to mind of when I was almost 30 years ago, I'm there in high school. I went to a Catholic high school, Roman Catholic high school. And I'm, and I'm there. And I remember freshman year, my religion teacher tells us right before the end of the year, he says, you know, I'm going on a pilgrimage. The pilgrimage of Compostela, Santiago de Compostela. Some of you are familiar with it. And, you know, people typically go on these pilgrimages as a, sometimes as a vow or some type of sacrifice unto the Lord. Um, and I'm talking generally. Some may do it for other reasons. I'm not trying to be overly overgeneralized. But I know, I know for in this particular case, he says, I'm going there. The sacrifice. And, and I'm taking donations. <laughs> um... And for that donation, you know, I'll go ahead and pray for you in that pilgrimage. I'll remember you. And I was like, wow. This guy's taking an entire summer to go ahead and walk this pilgrimage. That's just like, got to be like super boring and dreadful. And he's doing it. And he's thinking of me along the way. What a guy. <laughs> of course, I look back and, and I can't tell you for the life of me why this thought came to mind. Why this story came to mind. Because I don't think of it. I've never, <laughs> can't remember the last time I thought of it. But as I kept on probing and saying, Lord, why? why? Why this random thought? And it dawned on me that the greatest pilgrimage 
that was ever walked was Jesus on his way to the cross. And that is what David is banking on. That Jesus would walk the loneliest road that anyone in humanity has ever known. The entire wrath of God upon him. And David is looking to that and saying, that's where my hope is. The only reason you can show me grace and mercy is because Jesus walked it on my behalf. The unblemished lamb walked the loneliest road to Calvary for me. To die the loneliest of places that was reserved for me. Beloved, there's only one sacrifice and one sacrifice only that, will, that has and will ever appease a holy God. And that is what Jesus did on the cross. There's no pilgrimage that any human can walk that will ever surpass the pilgrimage of Jesus going to Calvary to pay for my sins and yours. So as you take communion today, you can rejoice in that. You can grab onto that. And you can rejoice in that. Because, beloved, there is no other hope in mankind. That is, it is only in Jesus, the name that is above every name. Amen? May you look to his wonderful grace and his love and his forgiveness and his mercy. Father, as we end here, Lord, uh, the preaching of your word, I ask, Lord, that your word would penetrate every single heart here. I pray, Father, that you would humble us. Humble us to the point of understanding what the Bible commentator said, that we would be aware of how little we deserve and how much our heart owes. I even dare to pray, Lord, break us as a church. Because there's something that we want, and that's to be a fragrant aroma unto you. And we know that the way up is down. And so we ask, Lord, help us, help your people now to draw near to you, to abide in Jesus, to stay near him, to seek him, to seek his kingdom, to seek his righteousness, believing that everything else will be added unto them. In Jesus' name, amen.